Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold. Thank you for joining me today. On today's episode, I'm going to take a slight break from looking at lesser magistrates. Um, I hope you enjoyed the interview with Brad Lanning uh, on the previous episode, uh, and I hope and pray that uh, perhaps he will become one of our lesser magistrates in the near future. And uh, I do plan on going back to that topic, looking at some historical lesser magistrates. But today, it's kind of a little bit different. I want to look at current issues of idolatry or current um, idolatrous behavior on the part of the government. Always looking for idolatry, which is very much tied to tyranny and to oppression and to the role of lesser magistrates. But before we get into some of that, uh, the passage of the day today is Leviticus chapter 5, verse 1, which says this, If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Okay, fairly simple law given to the people of Israel, and the purpose of this law is that Israel is supposed to pursue justice. And all condemnations of guilt, all declarations of guilt, required two or three witnesses to declare someone guilty. And, of course, in that day and age, testimony, eyewitness testimony, was the primary method of evidence. So, in this situation, there is a public call for witnesses. Some crime has been committed, perhaps a victim has been found, and the local magistrates are calling for witnesses to come testify. And it's supposed to be public. Uh, the, the crime is supposed to be discussed and addressed publicly. And that ties into uh, the modern uh, American and English common law tradition of uh, a public trial with a jury. But that's another topic. So if someone saw the crime, certainly they should report it. They should go get help. They should go get the magistrate, uh, the elder, the guard, whatever the case may be. But it is the obligation of the judges and the elders to call for witnesses. They're the ones that are prosecuting the case, trying to figure out what happened. And so they would make a public notice um, for anyone to come forward and speak about the matter. The call is public, so the crime is known. And in this case, though, so if someone hears the call to testify, but they, they don't do it for whatever reason, maybe, maybe they think the person deserved it, maybe they're afraid, afraid of getting in trouble, afraid of being put in the spotlight, maybe they're afraid of, of the, crim- the, the criminal uh, coming after them for testifying. But either way, God calls the people of Israel to be brave and to step forward publicly and to not shrink back from their responsibility as a citizen. And the punishment for not testifying, there's no, uh, there's no earthly punishment given in this law. You know, there's not stoning or, or, or whipping or anything like that. The punishment is divine. God says he will bear his iniquity. Okay, so God will punish those who don't speak out on behalf of of those who have been um, attacked or the victims of a crime. The elders would not know who was a witness, obviously. 
And so the witness, if he or she refuses to come forward, is going to bring God's wrath upon themselves for not for refusing to come forward. And the context of this law, if you if you read the next several verses in this very chapter, the it goes on to talk about other hidden or unknown sins. If someone does something accidentally and then they find out about it later that it was a mistake, they're to go and to make it right. If somebody touches something that makes them unclean, but they were unaware of it, right? But they come to find out later that they are unclean, they are to go and make it right with the Lord and offer sacrifices. So in each case, we have the context here of something was revealed that was previously hidden or unknown. And God's people are responsible for acting upon what they do know. Of course, if they don't know something, they're not held liable for what they don't know. But if they do know something and still refuse to do the right thing, God will hold them accountable. So grace is shown for the ignorant, but justice is is shown for those who know and do nothing. So in all these cases and these this particular series of laws, and in particular this law about testifying, if you don't know that something's required of you, well, once you are made aware that you're supposed to go testify, that you're supposed to do this this thing, now you're accountable. And if you don't do the right thing, God will punish you for that. Now, what about some application for this law? Well, God's people should care about the pursuit of justice. All of us as good citizens, especially Christians, should be willing to testify if called upon by the authorities, no matter how how fearful we might be, no matter the risks that might that we might be incurring. We need to do the right thing, speak the truth, knowing that God will hold us accountable. Uh, the, the Proverbs 21, verse 13 says, Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. So the point is that when we are called to be part of the justice system, to be part of pursuing justice in our community and in our culture, we need to step up to the call and do it right. Um, So an awareness of something puts responsibility on a person to respond properly. Again, uh, ignorance, you can get by on ignorance for a little bit, but once it's made known to you what is required of you, how you respond matters. God's people must respond to God's commands. Uh, Even after the fact, even if they've made a mistake and, and they've made errors, Uh, God will show forgiveness and mercy, but it requires that we come to the Lord. It requires that we come in faith and receive his blessing and and acknowledge that we made a mistake. So we see this in parenting. We see this in civil society. People who at some point in their lives maybe broke the rules. Maybe a kid broke the rules of the parents or a citizen broke the rules of, of the society and they got away with it, let's say. They got away with the crime or whatever happened. But then later on, they feel convicted of what they did, and they go forward and confess their sin. You know, mercy can be shown in those cases. Sometimes it is, but there's still a cost to bear. Just like when the people of Israel became aware of a sin that they committed, uh, their duty is to respond properly by offering sacrifices to the Lord. 
So uh, today, though, Jesus Christ bears the cost of our sins. He pays for the sin. Um, And our job really is to respond. That's our job, to respond to things. uh, God, you know, his standard is perfect. And uh, when we're not perfect, we are sinning. But even when we sin, which God knows we're going to sin, there's a way to make it right. And we make it right by coming to him, right? You come to the Lord, you confess your sin, you say, I messed up, I broke it, Lord, please fix this. And sometimes, yeah, sometimes there's, a, there's consequences and there's a cost to our sin, but there's always forgiveness for those who come to the Lord in repentance. It's never, it's never too late to do the right thing. And that's basically, that's the general principle that we draw from this law. And we can apply it in many areas, but it certainly applies in the realm of justice. When we are supposed to do the right thing by our neighbor, we must do it. We cannot be silent. So that is our law of the day. Uh, I want to move on now to talking a little bit about modern examples of idolatry, and specifically looking at the United States government and the issues of, I want to say, safism, being safe, but also vaccines, uh, masks, you know, the COVID, the COVID stuff. It kind of, it does kind of tie together because I have two different clips I want to play you. One is from Vice President Kamala Harris uh, talking about vaccines. And the other one is from Pete Buttigieg, who is the, I believe, the uh, Secretary of the Department of Transportation, if I'm not mistaken. I believe that is, that is the case. And he's talking about some new uh, transportation policies. But first, we'll begin with uh, Vice President Kamala Harris. I'm going to, uh, this is kind of jumping in the middle of this interview with uh, with um, MSNBC, but uh, there's a couple of things I want to point out here. I'm not going to go through the whole interview. There's much to be said on that, but I do want to touch on a couple interesting points uh, that she brings up. Not just, not just points of facts, but also uh, definite religious idolatry um, issues here. So with that, uh, let's begin. I think that it is, listen, we're all frustrated. I'm not going to pretend that yeah. we're not. We want to get back to what we all consider to be normal. But it's going to take all of us to be a part of that. And there's no question that the federal government has a role and responsibility, as do state and local governments, and we're going to have to continue to bringing the services and the resources to the people. Look at, for example, the issue of school. Okay, I'm I want to pause there for a second because she does bring up a point as far as the role of government. Of course, we would disagree, I would disagree with her as far as the extent of the role. Yes, there is a role uh, in the local, state, and federal governments to in- engage in these endeavors. Uh, the question is, what is that role? So we, we can all agree that, that they have a role to play. But exactly what that role is, that comes down to your understanding of Scripture, how, you, how we apply Scripture to the civil government, and how we have ordered our own society in the United States with federalism uh, and the separation of powers and the different layers of civil magistrates and authorities. So th- both of those things uh, come into play here. Uh, not, we can't really get into all of that right now, but we would disagree, I, I imagine, on what role each government is to play in that. Let's continue. 
there are lots of parents who are going to be watching this interview, right? Everybody agrees, whether it be parents, teachers, or students themselves, want the schools to be back open. Now 95% of them are. What did we need to do? We needed to address the fact that, in particular, our public schools need help with resources to improve their ventilation system. So we sent out $310 billion to the schools of America to help them get masks, do testing, get ventilation systems up to standard. So there is work that has been done. And again, is it the role of the federal government to send out all that taxpayer money to the schools? Um, I think a, a very simple philosophy to understand is that the more distance that money has to travel, the more inefficient it becomes. It's kind of related to the concept of friction, right? Uh, the further it travels, the more, the more human hands touch a dollar. Every one of them takes a small fraction, right? Call it the administrative fee. So as dollars travel through different hands and agencies and different levels of government, it loses its power, right? So, I mean, it makes, it makes perfect sense. If I take my money and go to a store, I, can, I buy it directly. If I want somebody else to buy it for me, a middleman, a middle right? That person, I have to give them a fraction. Uh, I have to pay, I have to, my cost goes up. If I give them the same amount of money or whatever, a frac, they take a fraction of that. And so that's why everyone always wants to buy things directly from the dealer, okay, or buy it wholesale, all right? And the more, the more middlemen that there are in any chain of supply and demand, uh, the more um, inefficient the dollar becomes. Sometimes you have to have a, a middleman, okay? You, you know, if I want to buy some kind of f- food or fruit that I can't grow here, I need someone to bring it to me. And so the cost is going to go up because of that. But if I, if I just buy it from a local farmer here directly from his, his farm, um, it's going to be more efficient that's way, that way. That's why people enjoy. That's one of the reasons why people enjoy going to farmer's markets and local uh, produce and, and things like that. So the, the point in all this is that when the federal government is doing these things, um, from the highest levels down to the local level of schools, it's very inefficient um, because that dollar has to travel so many more different places, passing through so many different hands, and becomes less efficient as it as it gets there. So, so maybe maybe they initiated three hundred ten billion dollars. How much of it actually got to the final result that they wanted, and how much of it was lost on the way? We don't know. And there is still work to do. This, this sermon that the administration's been preaching since the last... Now, now hold on there. Now, now, the interviewer, he mentioned this sermon that the administration's been preaching. So, so right there, just catch, catch your ear on that, okay? There's, there's a religious aspect here, and even, even the interviewer recognizes this. And, and by the way, just keep this in mind. Uh, this was uh, posted on January 13th, so about, about a month ago. Spring, when vaccines became widely available. Get your shot. Get a booster. Yeah. Wear your mask. Social, social distancing. We've heard the sermon. 70% of eligible Americans have been vaccinated, boosted. At, at what point does the administration say, you know what, this strategy isn't working. We're going to change strategies. Six former 
administration officials last week wrote that open letter urging the administration to change course, to change strategy. Is it time? We know. We still have a number of people that, that is in the millions of Americans who have not been vaccinated and could be vaccinated, and we are urging them to get vaccinated because it will save their life. And how do we know that? Because I think the recent numbers are well over 95% of the people who are in hospitals right now because of COVID. Sure. Or who have died were unvaccinated. I don't want to spend too much time debating the numbers there. I, I did some preliminary research straight from the CDC website. I don't. It, it depends on how you how you cut the numbers, right? Because numbers can be very misleading, and this is important for us to keep in mind. Um, is that statistics have to get interpreted in their context? Every fact is an interpreted fact. Okay, in that sense, there are no such thing as as brute facts. Uh, it depends on when you're when do you start counting. Do you start counting from the beginning of the of the pandemic, when there was no vaccine? Is that is that fair to count that, right? So let me just give you one example. I, I just looked at the CDC website, and I'll, I'll post a link in the show notes, um, that looked at the total cases of COVID from November seventh to January eighth. So this interview took place around January thirteenth. So last last three months before this interview. So everyone involved in this interview should have been aware of this data. It's from the CDC website itself. It said that in those three months, 423,000 cases of COVID uh, throughout the entire nation. And that's age 18 and above. So not children. 423,000 total cases of COVID. Now it says that 142,000 are unvaccinated. Okay. And 225,000 are fully vaccinated, all right, and 56,000 were boosted, so vaccinated plus booster, all right. Uh, now, I, I, he said, uh, the interviewer earlier said 70% of Americans were, were vaccinated. Um, I don't know if he's talking about the total population or of eligible. I think he said eligible are vaccinated. That certainly might be the case. I think that's probably about right. It might be a little bit lower than that. I, I think... Yeah, I have to take a look at more of the numbers there. But we do have the hard numbers of, of cases, right, from the CDC. Now, the question is, if you do some of the ratios, right, if you take a look at just that three-month period that I was looking at from November 7th to January 8th, okay, there were 4,000 hospitalized that were unvaccinated and 2,300 that were hospitalized that were fully vaccinated. And of the, of the 56,000 that were boosted, 400 were hospitalized. There's a total of 6,700 people hospitalized due to COVID in the last three months from November to January per the CDC website. All right. But what's interesting is that that's not, you know, the unvaccinated does not make up 95% of that. Remember, I said there were 4,000 that were hospitalized of the 6,700 that were unvaccinated. So the ratio is about 60 to 40. Okay, so 60% of the hospitalized due to COVID is the unvaccinated. And 40% are either vaccinated or boosted. So the point is, is that that whatever numbers, you know, the 95% that she came up with, it, it, it depends on where she got that from, right? 
because it's not from the most recent three months if you take that as the as the clip um, maybe you know she's counting different numbers so all of it like I said it all depends right and that's just one thing to uh, keep in mind as we continue that is still current relevant important information and, and those are the facts the booster will reduce anyone's likelihood of if they contract COVID, getting sick, being hospitalized, but we've and known, God but, forbid, death. But we've known this for, for months now. At, at what point but, does the administration acknowledge these people aren't going to get the shot? They're just not going to do it. I don't believe in giving up on people, Craig. Now, this is important to keep in mind. So she starts off, I don't believe in giving up on people. All right, let's continue to see what she says about this. I really don't. I don't believe in giving up on people. If we know what can help people, isn't it our responsibility as leaders to keep urging people to, to, to take advantage of what is available to them? You know, I do believe that sometimes people may not be ready for whatever reason is their reason. But if you don't give up, you might catch them on that day where they say, you know what? It's time for me to reconsider this. That's interesting. Now, now think about what she just said. That is exactly the attitude that as Christians we are to have in sharing the gospel with unbelievers. We don't believe in giving up on people. We know that that something is available for them. The blood of Christ, you know, salvation is available for them. If they just and they know it's, we know it's good for them. If they just reach out and accept it. And you never know on what day you might catch someone. And that's the day where they say, yes, Jesus is Lord. Amen. I believe. So what, that is, what she just said is the exact same structure and style that Christians use in sharing the gospel. But she's not sharing the gospel. She's sharing a different message a message of a different kind of salvation, a salvation by the works of man, a salvation of the vaccine. The vaccine will save you, and we have to keep telling you about it, calling you to repent, calling you back to our God, the God of, the God of man, the God of science, the God of medicine, the vaccine. Repent. Maybe today is the day don't let today be your last day. Today is the day. We're not going to give up on you because we love you. So this is what I mean when I'm saying that there's false gospel, idolatry, religious language. And even the interviewer mentioned that earlier, the concept of a sermon, preaching, right? And that's kind of the, what I wanted to point out today on this particular clip. So on this next clip, Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg is giving a speech about some new ideas for um, policies for safety regarding transportation. I'm not going to play the whole clip. The link will be in the show notes. It's about 40 minutes long or so. I do want to play two sections and kind of just point out what you know what's interesting about this and what's going on here. But really... He's going through different ideas and policies on how to make the roads safer. Because everybody wants to be safe, right? But I want you to hear what he says about it uh, in this clip. 
Another thing that it's going to take in order to change the trajectory of roadway safety in this country is a single, ambitious, shared goal. And today we commit that our goal is this, zero. Our goal is zero deaths. A country where one day nobody has to say goodbye to a loved one because of a traffic crash. Okay. So <laughs> maybe someone might say, well, that's just rhetoric. This is rhetoric. Well, we can't afford that. That kind of, you know, words have meaning. Ideas have consequences. Words mean things. Uh, so he says we need a new ambitious goal. So our previous goals were not working. Our new goal is zero deaths. And this is this, by the way, this is nationwide. Zero deaths nationwide. Now, I, I I don't understand. Like that that kind of a goal is is a dream. I mean, that kind of a goal where nobody dies ever on the roads is utopia. It's impossible. And now when we look at this kind of a goal, um, it doesn't really pass many of the tests for a good goal. Some people use the SMART acronym to describe a goal. Specific, measurable, achievable, relevant or realistic, and timely. So zero deaths, that's the goal. Maybe that's specific, okay, you know, zero traffic-related deaths, okay, basically perfection. The goal is perfection, all right? Is it attainable? Apart from the new heavens and the new earth? No. It's not attainable. Is it timely? Can we achieve that goal in any reasonable period of time? Probably not. And the interesting thing is that it's a recipe for tyranny. Now, I need you to hear me out on this. This is, this is the language of crisis. People think of tyrants as just mean people, this evil king, just, just killing everybody, angry, just trying to be super selfish. But there's different kinds of tyranny. And one of them is, I'm going to take care of you. You know, there's always a crisis out there. There's always an emergency that has to get solved and to get addressed. And the only one to save us, to address it, is the government. That's the only way. And, 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 and that, that leads the government to having an excuse, to doing all kinds of things right? The goal is very broad. There's this, there's this unspecific threat out there, you know, death, traffic death, COVID, you know, and the goal of solving it, you know, this crisis is, is here. And the only way to solve this crisis is for us to give the government more power. And the government needs that power in order to solve the problem. And sacrifices have to be made until the goal is reached. But of course, even then, even when we reach that goal, if we ever did, we can't let up. Because if you let up, then people will die. And the goal will not be there. It'll be, we'll lose it. We'll lose the utopia. It's so fragile. So one death is one too many. In order to take away death, you must give the government all power, omnipotence. He has to become God in order to stop people from dying. And those who oppose the government are really enemies of the state. They don't love their neighbor. They don't love their God. They're not obeying and following the rules. And they need to be removed and dealt with. And that is the new form of tyranny in our day. 
Let me play another clip from the same speech a few minutes later and talk about a few things there. We're going to count on technology and auto companies to work with us to make driving safer for those inside and outside the car. But it's also clear that technology alone will not save us, certainly not on any acceptable timeline. So the final thing I want to address may be more important than any single piece of technology or policy is that we need a national change in mentality. So the first option, well, the first thing he mentioned is technology, and he had talked a lot about different technology that will help us. So that, again, we can save ourselves. We have the tools, man, you know, we can build Babel. We can build the tower that will that will make a name for ourselves. But, but uh, keep in mind that technology is still not enough. It's not enough. We need more. And here's what he says. It is time for a transformation in how people think about road safety. Together, we can act to change the culture and the expectations. We're so accustomed to hazards on our roads that we sometimes behave as if the risks of today's roadways are inevitable, but they're not. People should leave the house and know that they're going to get to their destination safely. Well, first of all, a couple of things. A, no one can know that for certain. I mean, you got, you know, things happen, man. Things happen. And, and God says, don't, don't, uh, don't go out there saying that you're going to go out here in this place. This is from the book of James. You know, we're going to make this kind of money. We're going to come back. We're going to do such and such. No, you said, you, James says, you say, as the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, this will happen. There is no guarantee that when you leave your house, you will get to your destination safely. There is none. And no one can offer that guarantee. That's a promise nobody can keep. For God is in control and man is not. And it's interesting that the requirement is not just, you know, to reach this utopia, to reach this goal, is not just the tools and the power of government, but a change in heart. There's something internal has to happen to the, to the human uh, where we think differently. We begin, you know, it's, it's, it's a gospel transformation in a way. It's regeneration. It's a new spiritual uh, change uh, in our lives. So we got to keep that Keep that in mind here. Once we believe that and believe in our ability to collectively make progress, once we demand better, we will see more positive changes cascading across governments and industry. So it's believing. We need faith. Just You need to believe. You need to believe that we can do it. You need to believe in the technology. You need to believe in the, the righteous deeds of the government. You need to believe that you can get to destination safely, and then it'll work. Faith. All you need is faith. It's faith alone, but it's not grace alone. It's works. You have to work really hard, and it's not in Christ. No, 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 no. It's in man, man's power, man's government, and man's strength. So these are the the, the clips I wanted to share with you because all these policies are examples of um, seeing religion, spirituality, faith uh, in these things, right? Um, there's always a necessity for government action. And there will never be, like, there will never be a time where there are no threats, okay? And, and it's important to keep that in mind, is that the government never, um, it always says there's an emergency out there. There's a threat that has to get dealt with. Of course, the assumption is that the government is the solution, which I'm not sure why everyone assumes that, that the government at the highest level is the solution. Sacrifices must be made, of course. But without an objective standard such as the, the word of God, 
it really comes down to dealer's choice. You know, the government says, I, this is what an emergency is. This is an, I declare an emergency. Well, who says? Oh, well, I say. What's the standard? There, I make the standard of emergency. Oh, okay. Well, why is the government the only solution? Because. What sacrifices have to be made? Many sacrifices have to be made. Well, well, when it's over, will the government relinquish its power? Either A, the government's going to promise that but not deliver, or B, it'll never be over. Emergencies never end. And if it does end, it becomes another emergency. Okay, if it's not COVID today, it's Ukraine and Russia tomorrow, or China and Taiwan tomorrow, or economic collapse and inflation, or another variant. It'll never end, because we live in a fallen world. And we live in this fallen world and where people die, people get sick, bad things happen, and there is a role for government to play in all this, but that is defined by God. And if you're not going to have a standard, if you're not going to use the Bible as the standard, then you're going to make up your own. And the standard you make is going to be man's standard. And man is going to become tyrannical. Caesar is going to take what doesn't belong to him. And he's going to take what belongs to God, and he's going to make it belong to him. And like I said, it's the recipe for tyranny. And our founding fathers recognized this in the United States. The Constitution was formed um, in the middle of an emergency. The, the brand new country that had just survived the war. But even during the war... The, you could not deviate from the rights of, of the American people, which they grounded in English common law, which is grounded in, of course, Christianity. So even in the Constitution, the rights are not abandoned or um, ex- there's, there's no exemption just because of emergency. I mean, just just consider the Third Amendment that says, no soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in time of war, but in a matter to be prescribed by law. So even in a time of war, you can't just, out of necessity, put soldiers in people's houses without the law, without following the proper procedures? Yeah, that's right. So even in war, the rule of law is still there. There's no shortcuts. But the argument that's been going around since the dawn of mankind is that necessity, necessity leads to tyranny. I need to do this. We need to give the government more power. You know, what's interesting is that uh, John Milton, who wrote the book Paradise Lost, which is an epic poem, and I always I, I encourage everyone to read it, talks about the fall of Satan and the war in heaven and, and things like that. So and there's a section in which Satan has fallen, and he's, he's been cast out of heaven, but he hears about this planet that God has formed with humans in it. And so Satan goes to check it out and see what's going on. He sees them at a, from a distance. This is before he takes the form of a serpent to tempt them. Satan sees the peace and joy that Adam and Eve have, living together in perfect innocence and joy and harmony. He recognizes their innocence, but he thinks about what he's about to do to them. And he feels justified in his actions. And if you read it, he talks about how it's really, it's really God's fault that he's there and is about ready to attack Adam and Eve. And that really Adam and Eve should thank God for this. Um, it's not Satan's fault. They, you know, they can blame God for this because God forced Satan to get revenge in this way. Uh, Satan has no choice in the matter. He, he, he was wronged. God wronged Satan, and so Satan has no choice but to get revenge upon God by attacking Adam and Eve. 
and he, and even Satan recognizes that Adam and Eve didn't do any wrong against Satan. They didn't they didn't harm him, but but God did, and so Adam and Eve are going to have to suffer for it. But it's not Satan's fault. No, 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 no. It's it's not Satan's fault. It's God's fault. And then he goes on to say that he's doing this. He's going to corrupt the planet. He's gonna he's gonna take dominion of Earth and enslave Adam and Eve in the name of the greater good. And he says, he says, for public good, for honor and revenge, Satan must conquer the realm, right? He's compelled to do it, he says, although normally he would abhor the idea of it. So normally destroying something so innocent and beautiful and precious, nor, he says, normally that would, that would be abhorrent to me. But because God has wronged him, he has no choice. And this is and so in the old English, this is what Milton uh, says um, after Satan is done convincing himself that he needs to go and tempt Adam and Eve and conquer the planet and enslave humanity to sin. Here's what the narrator, I should say, says. I says, quote, "So spake the fiend, and with necessity the tyrant's plea excused his devilish deeds." End quote. And so the necessity is always the tyrant's plea. The tyrant says, I have to do it because it's necessary. And that is always what excuses the devilish and wicked deeds is necessity. Necessity breeds tyranny. And it will never end because there's always a necessity. There's always a need. And the answer is always Caesar, always the government. And so I would just encourage you today, listener, when you hear government officials talk like this, keep your ears open for that kind of language, that spiritual, uh, false gospel kind of language. It's a language of necessity, of crisis, of emergency. It'll never end. It'll just jump from one to the next. And the whole point of the Constitution is to prevent that, is to place restrictions upon the government. The, the Constitution does not lose its power just because someone says it's an emergency. That is not the way it's supposed to work. So continue to certainly pray for our country, pray for our rulers. Uh, I don't hate them. I pray that God grant them repentance and that they stop promulgating a false gospel and that they turn to the Lord and submit to his authority instead of demanding people submit to them as Lord. Anyways, thank you again for tuning in. If you have any questions, please Email me at gbgpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also send any topics you want me to talk about. I'm happy to do so, either privately or even on the podcast. Uh, please share the show with a friend. Thumbs up, stars, reviews, all those things are, are quite helpful to get this out to more, more folks. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, all the places there. So, anyways, until next time, take care and God.